That's the third time you've clocked it. So, okay, never mind. Thanks. I'm ready. Broke my concentration. I was ready. I know you were going to say that's why I said that right then. And (laughs) hello, everybody, and welcome to. Hold on, I just I started saying something, and you're probably going to hear it. You're going to do that again. God, you're going to mess. It's just like doing the fire instructor one class with you. Well, (laughs) I got to do it over and over again, and if I want to sound half confident, I got to do it again. My my lips are closed. You're lying, aren't you? (laughs) You're so going to jack with me again. No, I'm not because I'm actually ready to get out of here. <laughs> My legs fell asleep. <laughs> God, you went to the bathroom. It's not like we don't give you bathroom breaks. I know, something. and I came limping back in here for my legs coming back from being asleep. Okay. Are you gonna do this? I'm waiting for you. I'm 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 quiet. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Kitchen Table. I am Justin White. This is Josh Winter. He's the talent. I'm the DJ. You're the rapper. As always, we are your amateur podcasters for this episode. How are you? I'm good. I'm very good. It's been a while. It's funny. Every time time we get back in the studio, it's like it's been a while. It's been a while. How long has it been? Um, Nothing this year. um, We recently released the episode with Joe Kramer. Right. But we did that episode. We recorded that back in November, I believe, October or November. But we did um, the Resiliency mm-hmm. uh, Substance right. Abuse S- the series. series after that, the one you didn't want to participate no, in. No, the one I wasn't invited to. Oh, no, you were invited. Was I? I didn't get the it, – it's probably on my you calendar. You the talent, man. Like okay. I had to just sit there and go, okay, I'm going to let you talk. Well, it was probably not – it was – probably not on the correct calendar for that year this year is a new year could be yeah i'd check the one in writing yeah it's probably there (laughs) (laughs) but that went very well um i really really enjoyed um talking to those folks about the their substance abuse issues and and how they've overcome those Uh, i found that very very rewarding um just to listen and and listen to them talk and, and how much courage that took for them to come out and and essentially bear their souls and um you know show the scars of uh, scars of life and i hope i hope that helps somebody out there yeah it's great that we're in a place as an organization where people are willing to do that and you know what was interesting to me is i thought when it was going to happen it was going to be people talking about drinking you know but it wasn't just that right yeah you know and so like other things that you know what are those other vices that kind of get in the way of our success or are doing our job or you know that are negatively impacting our life yeah uh, and we have um since then we've had people contact us and say hey we'd like to share our story as well uh so there's more people out there that want to share their stories um want to be um you know be able to be out there and support those that are in need um, so we're going to have some more of those in the future. Oh, that's really great to hear. One thing I want to talk to you about today is, oh, I don't know, six months ago we did um, we did a podcast with the Hockey Think Tank Podcast Boys, so Topher and Jeff. Right. And in that podcast, you made a statement that said happiness is temporary. And so I was thinking about that. And, you know, usually when I describe myself or I'm thinking about my life right now, despite the ups and downs and the things that we go through, I would say that I'm happy. Okay. But 
how you described it as being temporary and having an expectation that you'll always be happy is, is unreasonable. Um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about that because I, I, I guess I disagree a little bit. Yeah. So it's, it's an interesting topic. Um, and I think it's one that I started thinking about because what I was trying to figure out was what job fulfillment was, right? Like, what does it mean to have job fulfillment? I was trying to figure that out for myself, you know, because, you know, I look at my career and, you know, I'm, oh, I don't know, you know, two thirds of the way through it and, and going, am I, am I where I want to be? You know, what else do I want to do? What else can I get out of this career? Um, and so it kind of led me down that path of looking at those different topics. And somehow it got me to this point of looking at three different things and it's enjoyment, satisfaction, and having purpose. Um, and when you can put those three things together, that's where you start to see job fulfillment. Um, and so the, the joy part of it, the enjoyment part of that, what, what I looked at and, and kind of what I was reading about, and I can't remember where I was reading it, um, but what I was reading is joy and satisfaction are temporary. You know, joy and satisfaction are not things that you own. Um, you don't have them. Um, it's things that um, you get in either small doses or um, from completing a project or the, um, the act of, of doing something and and there's different levels right um when i look at i can do something that gives me joy immediately like right now while i'm doing this this makes me happy but then there's other things um, like my running when i run um, depending on the distance there's a lot of times where i am not having fun <laughs> it is nothing you know there's no joy in it um, but at the completion of it i feel a sense of joy and and I feel a satisfaction for being able to complete that thing. Um, and the other thing is, you know, just having conversations with Judith about, um, you know, happiness and like my own happiness. Um, even Judith has, and, and this might not be said the right way, um, but I think Judy, Judith has even said things like, it's, it's unreasonable to think that you're always gonna be happy, like that you're always gonna have joy. Um, so I'm wondering if you and I are talking about, you know, two different things. If you say I disagree with you, um, you know, do you feel like joy and happiness are the same thing? I guess that's what I would ask you back. I guess I could see where joy would be fleeting. Mm -hmm. Something that makes me joyful. Some, mm -hmm. You know, you do something that brings you joy. Um, but I would tend to describe my overall feeling, my overall well-being right now as one of being happy. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm happy where, where my career is. I'm happy with where my kids are. I'm happy of where I'm at with my stage in my marriage. Do um, Are there times that I get frustrated? Are there times that um, I'm disappointed or sad and, and run the general range of emotions? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but from a big picture perspective and from a soul for soul for soulful perspective, I would say that I'm happy. And I don't know that I would just limit myself. I, I guess I don't know another way to describe it. Like what other word would I use for this, the state of my life? That's true. Maybe it is a, a vocabulary thing. You know, it's um, um, and maybe this is a little off topic, but it's kind of like the idea of intuition, right? Intuition is something that it's like, I don't know how, I don't have the words 
to say this. I don't have, like, I know it, I can feel it, I can't describe this, but something is telling me, you know, this. Um, you know, and, and so maybe it is, maybe it's the words, because when I, uh, just a minute ago, you asked me, how are you doing? Um, I believe, like right now, I, I'm happy. You know, this feels good. Um, I believe the tone. I said, I'm good. You know, mm-hmm. but there's been times where people have asked me, how are you doing? And I've been like, good. You know, there's a different tone in that. Um, where I've even had somebody go, no, really, how are you? You know, and it kind of makes me go, okay, like this is a true conversation. This isn't mm-hmm. just the common greeting. Hey, how are you doing? Right? Because like, are, are you really wanting to know how I am or is, are we just greeting each other and then we're going to move on? Um, so, yeah, I don't know. But I, I, I think for me is where, where I got to with that information is I was trying to find this job fulfillment. How do we, how do we find job fulfillment? And um, going, okay, so there's got to be some joy in my job. Like when I come to work every day, um, there should be joy. I should be happy. The um, moment you see me every morning. I go, oh my God, I'm going home. No, you, you're hired because there's joy <laughs> and happiness. There always is. It's very short-lived because it's temporary. <laughs> but. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, um, people say, you know, we talk about it on, on this job. We're like, oh, you got to have fun at work. It's like, right. Like you should have, you should have fun at work. There should be joy in work. But it's also work too, right? Like you can't expect to come into work and every day is going to be fun. Right, and so there's a separation there. So let me let me provide you a real world example. Okay, is this is this about me? Is this how I came to you work one day? Involved. You might be involved. <laughs> so I'm trying to schedule a meeting. Okay, I, just I, it's a simple task. Yeah, right, simple task. Should, there should be no emotion tied to it. Yeah. So I'm I'm working through Outlook, and I'm trying to line up everybody's calendar. Can we pause for a second? No. What's Outlook? Yes. Okay. Okay. So now we're kind of laying the foundation here. So I get into Outlook and I'm trying to work through and I'm trying to line up everybody's calendars, but there's one person's calendar that doesn't have anything on it. So I don't, so I schedule the meeting and then I get a text. Hey, I can't go to the meeting. <laughs> so I reschedule the meeting and I get a text and I say, okay. And the text says, I have to reschedule the meeting. I can't make it. And so at that point, I'm, you pick the descriptor. Hate. Frustrated, hate, Because before that, it was love. You're like, I love working with this man. And now you're like, I hate him. I but hate I him. Say, and I guess what I'm <laughs> trying to say is the frustration caused by that or the general disdain that I have for your organizational skills. That was maybe a little harsh. That was, the, that was actually, frust- that was really harsh. My frustration <laughs> with your lack of organizational skills <laughs> doesn't make me any less happy. It's just a, blip on the screen my overall state of being is still happiness so in general yeah for you and so yeah. i'm saying from a broad from a broad perspective i have to describe myself somehow yeah and if you if you don't let me use happy i don't know what word <laughs> i'm supposed to use uh, i think you could say you're happy okay i would like um, next time that you're not happy i'm going to point it out though I'm going to be like, are you happy? So, just because, just to kind of get away from this, the disdain that you have for my organizational skills, which I'm not going to disagree with. Sometimes okay. I disdain my own organizational <laughs> skills. <laughs> but let me just let me just wrap it up by 
kind of giving the rest of my, you know, my thought process to that is where do we find fulfillment in our job? How do we create job fulfillment? And I think it's three things. I think it's, we have to have joy, you know, we have to have, find fun in what we're doing. There has to be satisfaction, right? And the satisfaction is that outcome. Um, and I use the example of, I've worked really hard for this promotion. And then on promotion day, I go in and I get that badge pinned on me by a family member. And I feel satisfied in, in the work that came in, into that. Now within that, there is a level of sacrifice. So I believe that in job fulfillment, there should be, or there is probably a level of sacrifice in there. But the last thing that ties us all together is making sure that we have a purpose. Like when I come into work every day, there, I should know the purpose on why I'm here. And I think that those three things together to include a level of, um, what did I just say? Now I'm, I'm losing it, of, a level of sacrifice creates job fulfillment. I agree. Thank you. I agree with that. And I think that ties in with our guest today. Yeah, I would say absolutely. Yeah, Dave Anderson. Um, author of the book, Becoming a Leader of, of Character. Um, we talked a lot about, a lot of good things with him. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of good things with him. We defined some things that I think we as an organization sometimes have trouble defining. Um, and he boiled down some things um, to the fundamental base of leadership that sometimes I think we need. I know I read a lot of leadership books and uh, your, your head can almost get spinning with all the catchphrases and try this and try that and do this, you'll be successful. When actually there's very few things uh, that you need to do uh, within your own character, within your own self to be a successful leader. Yeah, absolutely. He's, he's, um, he's really talking about the foundation of, of like all things leadership, right? Um, you know, it's, it's, we can, we can try to be somebody else. We can, you know, through impersonation or trying to do things that people, like, I think they want me to be this, so I'm going to try to do that, um, you know. But when we get past all that and we keep progressing in our journey of, you know, the study of leadership, um, you know, it keeps coming back to everything that he's talking about in here, which is our own character. Yep, absolutely agree. Um, I think we've mucked it up enough. So without further ado, let's listen to the interview with Dave Anderson. All right, welcome everybody to the kitchen table. Today we have Dave Anderson, uh, who wrote a book uh, called Becoming a Leader of Character. And that piqued Josh's interest. Absolutely. Uh, we got that book, I think, from Chief Dubay, right? I did. Uh, who had seen you speak at a, at a conference or something. Were you at the Chiefs, State Chiefs Conference? I was up in Keystone back in October. Yep, and so he saw that. He passed the book to us. Josh got it first because he's our officer, officer development uh, expert. And so he read through it and then gave it to me and said, hey, would you like to have these guys on the podcast? And it's absolutely. I like I like talking to anybody. So uh, <laughs> let's start off as we do all these shows. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us about your journey. Tell us how you got to today. Well, uh, 
Real quick, I guess the way to start is to say I'm the son of an Army general. Uh, my father went to West Point, and I went to West Point. Uh, he served 42 years active duty in the Army. I did four. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, so, let, uh, you know, we kind of average out well, I think. Uh, but uh, I, my father, the last 24 years uh, in, the, in the military, he was the head of the physical education department at West Point. Uh, and, uh, and he, uh, and that's where I grew up. And so I ended up going to West Point. And after I uh, graduated from West Point, I got stationed down at Fort Hood, Texas. Uh, and while I was there, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait and I deployed for Operation Desert Storm. Uh, and then I got after coming back from Desert Storm, I got out of the military and I spent 20 years in the corporate world. Uh, five years as an individual salesperson and then 15 years leading sales teams in different parts of the country. And uh, in 2012, I decided that was enough of the corporate world and everything that the good, the bads and the uglies that goes go with it. And I decided, you know, what do I love to do? Well, I love developing people and I'm passionate about the topic of leadership. And uh, I decided, well, that's what I'm going to do and started my own company then in 2012. And uh, and then in 2016, my father and I wrote that book, uh, Becoming a Leader of Character Together. And uh, I always tell people if my mom was the only one who read read the book, it was worth doing it with my dad. And uh, he's my hero. And I'm, I'm very blessed to have a guy like that as my father. And I know not everybody's had that, but I. I I'm thankful for every every day that he's on this earth. He's going to be 90 in uh, April, uh, and he says he's not old. He's chronologically superior. So, a <laughs> uh, couple things about your dad's service. So, 42 years. Uh, how many conflicts or how many official wars was he actually a part of? Yeah, maybe conflicts is not the right. Maybe just like official well, wars. He did, he did two tours in Vietnam. Uh, his okay. first tour was in 1963, before any Americans could really find Vietnam on a map. Uh, he was a, uh, so he, when he graduated from West Point, he went to Ranger School, was honor graduate from the Ranger School, and then became uh, a Ranger instructor there. And, and his expertise was uh, guerrilla warfare and anti-insurgency type work. Uh, and he went over to Vietnam in 63 and was embedded deep in the jungles. He was the only American with a uh, South Vietnamese battalion in 63. Uh, I mean, with that one battalion, there were other Americans over there, but not a lot. Uh, and then he went back again in 69, 70. He was a battalion commander uh, in 69 and 70 while he was there. So that was, those were his two uh, tours in combat. That's, you know, and I think the important thing you know, with that in this conversation is the experience that you guys both bring to the concept of leadership. You know, he's talking about the Vietnam War and being in, embedded with, you know, the, the um, you said the, South oh, I'm sorry, Vietnamese. South Vietnamese, right? And then your experience in war, um, corporate world leadership, um, you know, how that all applies to this book. Um, I, another question I had was, 
the corporate world. So you left the military. You said you did four years of active duty, but you also did four years at West Point, right? So you've got really eight years of military experience behind you. And then you go into the corporate world. Um, And there's some big differences between the corporate world and the military. Um, So I'm curious what your thought is on what did you miss the most when you went into the corporate world? Oh, wow. I think it's a lot of what military uh, people with military background miss just getting out of the military and going into civilian workplace. Uh, and maybe not so much in fire services because there's more of this, but I think uh, the sense of duty and the sense of obligation to doing the right thing, uh, you know, and not so much being me centric, but we centric, I think come lends itself to the military and lends itself to the fire service. Uh, and I think you miss that. You also miss the camaraderie uh, yes. where you've gone through so much together. And uh, and then all and then at work in the in the real world, for most people, they see everybody at work and then they go home at night and they see everybody working. And, and, and it is we're in the military. And I think a lot, like I said, with the fire service, it is your life because you live together and you and you eat together and you train together and you're and and everything so i think that was a big thing that i missed was the camaraderie as well of the people who i just had that common bond with and common experience with especially those formative years when i was in the military i got out of the military at, you know i was 25 years old when i got out so uh uh i was just a young i was just a young lad yeah <laughs> I, I like uh you know what you said first was really what I was hearing from that is, you know, you had a purpose for something that was greater than self, right? You had this this greater purpose that you were working for, and then you and then you talked about camaraderie. Um, my dad was um, military; he's a military officer, and went into the corporate world after twenty years of military service. And mostly, what he talked about was the camaraderie. He's like, I just miss it. Yeah. He's like, I miss I miss my people, you know. Yeah. Um, the last thing that I want to touch on since I've kind of like side kind of sidetracked this a little bit was um, you mentioned your dad was part of the physical education department. Yeah. And what I've heard about West Point is that everybody that goes to West Point has to do some kind of a sport. Um, and then so what does that mean? Like, why does West Point say you will do a sport? What does that mean? How does that help in your professional development becoming an officer? Well, uh couple things history of that is actually that was douglas macarthur who started that uh when douglas macarthur was a superintendent at west point uh he made the statement that every cadet needs to be an athlete and uh and the way that looks now is that every cadet whether or not you're either doing a varsity sport a club sport or and or a intramural sport so there's so even if you're not in any varsity sport, you are going to be playing some sort of sport. Uh, and the idea behind that is obviously the the sense the teamwork that goes into uh, into sports. It also it also uh, my father would say that uh, there is no absolutely no reason for athletics uh, to be sponsored by a school. He talked about it in universities or in, even in high schools there's absolutely no reason there's no academic reason for uh an athletic department or for varsity sports at all in any sort of learning institution unless it was there to build character that's that's pretty powerful it is 
I mean, I mean, it, and I and I've parroted him since then because uh, you know you can see even in high school sports how uh, you know the winning and losing becomes the object of things, and it's really less than less than two percent of uh, high school athletes ever make it to college uh, athletics, and yet we make such a big deal about it in high school. So, what is the purpose of it? I think it should be character development. Do you, yes. do you think we've lost some of that in our youth sports? I, I don't know how old your kids are. I have two kids both entrenched in youth sports yes. right now, and and uh, I kind of see the failure of that. And I, I do. don't know if you, you agree or not. I 100% I, I agree. And uh, it is uh, the uh, – I my kid – I was fortunate enough to work and uh, be on a uh, – one, an advisory committee at my kid's school on athletics. And uh, I made that statement and I ticked a whole lot of parents off about that. Oh, I and, bet. And, uh, and my daughter ended up playing college, college volleyball at di division one level. And so, and I'm, so fortunately I could say that, uh, you know, see it, say that and have a, uh, a kind of a platform for it because, uh, because of her success. But, uh, yeah, I agree. It it has become sports has become uh, the object of it for young kids is 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 going in the wrong direction, and it's very special to have a coach that keeps it focused on the character aspect. You know, and I think as parents, you know, my son has dreams of playing high level hockey, right? Mm -hmm. And we want to teach him, yeah, you know, dream big, go for it. Yeah, the, the, the percentage is small, but somebody's got to do it, right? Mm -hmm. Like every year they put rookies into the NHL, might as well be you. So um, you need to work hard. You have to, you know, put in the effort, you know, do all the things that you need to do to get there. And our, the way my wife and I look at it is we're trying to build a good human through athletics rather than, and he gets to whatever he gets to. I mean, that's, yeah. you know based on his potential and his, his willing his willingness to work. But if we can instill some of those things, some of those traits of a good human into them through sports, then, you know, I think there's some value there. But I don't think all parents think that way. No, and they don't. And sports is an incredible – I love sports. Sports is an incredible laboratory for character and for developing character. The question is, uh, are the coaches and the parents seeing it that way? And uh, And honestly, you know, my the idea would someday would be for us to have some sort of uh character uh curriculum and focus on coaches to help them see and and equip them to be able to build to use the lessons of sports to build character again because um you know that the win win loss will come with if the character uh if, if the character is built in and uh is the focus up front and i think we got it uh bass backwards uh as far as that goes um and uh but you know but you and you see i think you see the character um in the teams representing the service academies yes so like you go to an air force hockey or football game um, army hockey football game you can see things that in an Alabama Ohio State game would trigger a fight mm -hmm. that these kids just walk away from. Right. You know, and I am sure I'm sure they get to John on the field cuz that's just how athletics are, but for the most part um, they're in it for the sportsmanship aspect of it and you can tell that they know 
right from wrong and what a good sport is and what a good bad sport is and things like that. So you can watch and, and watch that character being built just in their activities. Yeah, absolutely. What I'm hearing is just like the concept of leadership or being a good leader it takes a lot of work. And I get to sit on the sidelines here and kind of watch, you know, as Chief White comes in and talks about what he's doing with his son and and how the sports are going and stuff like that. But everything he just said, I get to hear that every, you know, not every day, you know, but almost, most days. No, almost, yeah, yeah. <laughs> about, you know, what, you know, when he has these conversations with his kids about what they're learning and what they're getting out of it. And it's actually, it's pretty motivating to kind of watch it, watch it play out. So you move from military to private sector, moved through leadership in the military world. You moved up to a leadership position in the corporate world. What's the fundamental difference? Hmm. Or what's fundamentally the same? Well, I mean, obviously the outcomes are uh, of poor leadership or more dire in the military than they would be in corporate world. And as I used to remind people in the corporate world uh, who were, you know, there was a situation at one time, and I won't get into details, but we were at some big meeting and one of my peers was flipping out over something that wasn't going well. And I just, you know, I kind of said, hey, calm down, it's gonna be okay. And he's like, well, I'm glad you can just be so flip about this, Dave. And I and I looked at him and, I, and his name was Vince. And I said, hey, Vince, uh, look, couple years ago, I had people shooting at me. Uh, you know, so so the fact that this isn't going well is not gonna is not gonna get me too much in a twist. Okay, you know, but it, it, it kind of puts thing it puts some things in perspective here. And I think that bad leadership is not going to kill anybody in the corporate world unless you're dealing with safety, safety things. Uh, but uh, the you know, there's reason in the in our book, becoming a leader character, my father leads off with a story about combat and leadership and combat and i then follow with a story about leadership in the corporate world because we're trying to make a point that it's the same principles apply here they really do so um i think that that is what i would say is probably the thing i learned most is how similar they are and the the requirements of leaders in both places are similar you're just you know the stakes may be different yeah so one of the questions that I, you, you kind of already touched on this, but one of the questions I had for you was, um, you know, how does this path that you've taken through West Point in the corporate world, um, you know, how did it get to you actually writing the book? And we've kind of talked about that, but yeah. was that, was that your, did you go to your dad or did, did your dad come to you or were you guys just, you know, sitting around having a beer one day and you're like, you know what, we're, this is a great conversation. Let's put it in writing. Well, you know, my father was already talking about the character aspect in leadership. And actually, when he got out of the military himself, he started uh, teaching at what was the, what's called the Lincoln Leadership Institute in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And uh, he was talking about this whole idea that, which is the focus of the book, which is leadership being a blend of competence and character. And I had heard him talk about that for years. I mean, growing up there in you know West Point, same principles and things. Um, and then in the corporate world, we had tons of training poured into us. I worked for a huge company that had millions and millions of dollars in a training budget. And they were always putting the leadership through different leadership classes. And it was great. I got all these incredible teachers and, and 
uh, principles and things poured into us. Uh, but what I recognized was over time was there's all these my peers who were going through this these same classes I was and and sometimes I would take over their teams or I'd take over people from their teams we'd reorganize and I'd get some of their people and I realized they aren't doing anything with the training they just got right and and I thought about it and I you know and uh you notice the timeline I spent about four or five years doing leadership training consulting work before we wrote this book and I kept going into these organizations and I kept realizing that's the same way everywhere all this training was on, you know, it was like we were handing people all these tools. And I always tell people just because you hand somebody a hammer doesn't make them a carpenter. We're handing people tools and they're choosing not to use them. So is it the tool's fault or the person who's wielding that tool or should be wielding that tool? And all this money was being spent in corporate America and honestly in, in people in public safety on all these leadership principles that are good principles, but they're not making a difference because of, you know, whatever is inside that person, which I think we'll get to here in a little bit, uh, is preventing them from wielding those tools. So, and as you read the beginning of the book, and I know you all have, you know, we talk about, you know, most leadership training, what we're doing is in most cases, we're giving Robitussin to a pneumonia patient. And we're wondering why they're not getting any better. We're treating the symptoms all the time, but not the disease, which is character. And these men and women I I was with in the corporate world who didn't never implemented this stuff, there was something in their character that was preventing them from even giving that stuff a try. Oh, I already know better. Oh, what are they going to teach me? I've done this for 20 years now. Oh, uh, school of hard knocks is where I come from. I don't need this academic stuff, you know. And... Uh, and you want, and I would watch this. And so, yes, did I go to my father about this? Yes, I was, uh, I was talking to a mentor of mine in, who is, who also does leadership training and speaking and things. And he said, Dave, you got to write a book. You got all these things in your head. And I said, yeah, I know. I've got, I've got, I've got some ideas. And like, well, how, he said, well, what about writing a book? I said, but the problem is I got six books to write. And he said, well, tell me your ideas. And I started going through my ideas and he stopped me at one point and he said, wait a second, you want to write a book with your dad? And I said, yeah. And he said, he said, and he's 82 years old. And I said, yeah. And he said, what are you waiting for? And I was like, boom. I called my father 24 hours later. I said, dad, this is what I'd like to do. Would you do it with me? He said, he said, absolutely but I'm 82 years old. You're doing all the heavy lifting. And I said, yes, all the writing. We're just going yeah. to, and so that's how we got started. And uh, sometimes all, sometimes all it takes is the right question, right? Exactly. Or a good kick, kick in the pants, right? Uh, we'll make people have people make you see the reality that's in front of you. Yeah. One of the things that, uh, kind of what you're talking about is, um, I think one of the biggest complaints I hear about people that go to different kinds of workshops and things like that is they go to the workshop and then it's over. Um, it's like, what is that ongoing process? And that's what you're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think you'll talk about it a little bit later, but I know that you use the DISC model. Um, I'm not very familiar with that. I'm very familiar with Clifton Strengths, which I think you know is mm -hmm. similar. Um, and one of my even um, kind of not complaints, but one of the things that I'm trying to figure out with Clifton Strengths is 
how do you make it you know ongoing you know it's very easy to put together a workshop it's very easy to put together some training um, but how do you give people the right tools and the passion and inspiration to continue to use that um, uh, and and it sounds like that's what you're talking about yeah josh and i think you you might have heard me say this I, i'm a big believer that training is an event and development is a process and what we do too often again everywhere but since i know who we're talking here in the fire service we think we put on a training event and then we wonder why it's not having any long-term impact. And what we've tried to do for firefighters of character is not just to do training events, uh, but is also to not just, so we, what we say is our, our goal, our why, if you've ever uh, read any Simon Sinek stuff is uh, to inspire and equip people so that they become leaders of character who inspire and equip others to lead with character. So, yeah, we so much of the that stuff that's out there is just that inspiration that woohoo, yes, I'm going to change everything tomorrow. And then there's nothing to equip people to do that. And so what we're trying to do is make sure yes, we come in with some inspiration and and things, but then at the same time equip individual leaders, in, uh, equip agencies, departments uh, to with the resources to continue the development process after we're done with the inspiration, the inspiration, the training stuff. Uh, and so I think that's critical. Uh, and that's that's a missing piece in so much leadership development. Uh, and that was the other reason why I got started in this was because I just saw these gaps. One was a, a gap in the focus on character. And another one was a gap in, in what do you do after the training was over? So, uh, and we're trying, we're working on filling those all the time. Yeah, and I think there's just so much of it out there, mm -hmm. you know, that it's easy. Like you, you spoke about your your organization. Oh, they bring in all these leadership people all the time. Well, you, you get these leadership folks, and man, they tell you, you know, all the all these different things. And so, you know, one might give you a sander, one might give you a gee whiz hammer, one might give you the special saw. Yeah. And then it's a two hour class, and they walk out of the room, but no one's taught you how to use it. Yeah. You right. know, and so you're trying to make a carpenter and that's where you, you got to come back in the continuing education. And, you know, let's talk about the application of this in your world. Right. Um, and that's one of my questions to you is, have we made leadership so complicated that it's just it's almost a lost art now? Like there's just so much stuff out there. There's just there's almost so much stuff out there. You can't even boil down what like the top five fundamental pieces of leadership are. Yeah. Um, you know, so how do we get how do we get back to that? How do we get back to these are the five things of leadership or whatever, the, whatever that number might be? Uh, well, first of all, I think you're right. I think we've we've uh, made it more complicated than it needs to be. And a lot of it is the fact that there's a lot of good leaders out there who have uh, been successful and they think that their success is, you know, if you do it my way, I predict you're going to be successful, and um, that not is not necessarily wrong. But when you start looking at the commonalities among those successful leaders, and you start you start boiling it down to, you know, you can start boiling it down, and uh, you know, I truly believe leadership. So leadership is all about who we are, right? And we start out every single one of our seminars, or you know, the keynote address, like I did up at Keystone, or um, wherever I'm at with one question, 
would you follow you? That's that uncomfortable look in the mirror type question that I think all leaders should be asking themselves all the time. Too much of the leadership stuff that, that's out there is really management. They're management uh, tools. And, you know, the, it's almost like all the stuff I was hearing was like, this is what you do to other, what you do to other people in order to get them to do the stuff you want them to do, right? This is how you manipulate people. And, you know, act, I don't want to say it's, it's only manipulation when you do it for the wrong reasons, when you do it for, you know, and that goes back to the character aspect. And if you start from the position of character, and if you start from the idea that would you follow you, well, every set, the other thing we do in every session is the fact I stop and I ask the whole group, whether or not it's a group of 15 or whether or not it's a group of 1500, I ask them, I say, tell me about your favorite leader you ever worked for. And what are your three favorite, what, what three traits did you admire most about them? And I just, take a, on a whiteboard and I write them up, write up whatever anybody yells out, you know, oh, courage, humility, you know, all those types. And I write them all down on the whiteboard. And then I point out to them the survey that we did in our book, where we asked that exact same question. And the fact that 87% of the people in our survey in the, that we put together for the book, 87% of the people, when they described the, what they admired most about their favorite leaders, they were describing a character trait. Only 13% were describing some sort of competence. Now, when, we, when I define competence, I say competence is knowing what to do and how to do it. You know, but the 87% of the people describe character. And then when I point them back to the whiteboard and I say, and look at all the things you wrote down. Every single group. I've been doing that exercise for uh, almost nine years now. Thousands upon thousands of people everybody is describing characters why they follow people yet everything that we do in leadership training is so focused on the knowing what to do and how to do it those competencies and not on who we are and spending time looking in the mirror and examining our own character first those other things are good but again those that's the robitussin as opposed to the stuff that's going to treat the pneumonia yeah, and you make a good point. We, we've talked about it here. Um, you know, you get people who study a particular leader, and we always use Jocko, and I'm sure he's going to come on this podcast sometime and just and cr crush my soul. Um, but you have to explain to people that read, you know, read what Jocko puts out, listen to what he puts out. But remember, you're not Jocko. So what works for him, take the things that fit with your character and integrate them into your leadership style. Don't try to be Jocko or don't try to be Simon Sinek or Brene Brown or, mm -hmm. you know, all these other different leaders. Like take every little bit and see see what fits into your style, because then it comes off as authentic as opposed to. You know, you just trying to be someone else. Yeah. And I think, you know, speaking of Jocko, I think that he is, um, you know, even 
he's written more books, right, to maybe even overcome that. Like when you look at that, the dichotomy of leadership, you know, where he's trying to give people the path on how to do it. Um, and I think that some people just don't look deep enough. I think surface level is what the problem is. So it's not that, you know, yes, Jocko's got some awesome information, but on the surface level, somebody might read that and go, okay, this is who I have to be. And it's like, well, hold on just a second. As soon as you start trying to be somebody that you're not, you're not going to come off authentic. You're not going to be able to live the character strengths that make you who you are and make you successful. Um, so I think that the, the fault is on the user side, you know, yeah. obviously. Well, yeah. Um, and, I, and as I sit here and as you're talking, I'm thinking about what are the things that people most readily identify with as far as, you know, all those leadership people that we just discussed, and that's their character. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, if you look at Simon Sinek, he's very he's very well grounded in character. Mm. Brene Brown's very well counted grounded in character, Jocko, David Goggins, you know, to one extreme or another, you look at them and it's their character traits that you really identify with and attract, that that's what attracts you to them as leaders. It's an interesting thing. I was just meeting, I was just down at the, uh, the Medal of Honor Museum is being built in Arlington, Texas right now. It's going to be this amazing, uh, amazing place that it's specifically focused on our Medal of Honor winners. And, uh, but I was down there talking to the uh, staff and to the people who are putting together a, a leadership institute down there. Uh, and, and I told them, I said, please tell me any story about these Medal of Honor winners and I'll tie it back to character. I said, and tell me any leadership failure story and I'll tie it back to character. I mean, it is the thing, but it is, you know, uh, it is unfortunately not talked about enough and not specifically spoken about. It's in a, it, like you said, it's in a lot of those things and with what other people are talking about, uh, what we've tried to do is just hone right in on it and make it very specific and, and like we said, uh, accessible and actionable as well, where people say, oh, I, I, I can do that. And so that's what we're trying to hopefully get help people with. Yeah, I think this is a great um, kind of point in this discussion to to bring in how you define character. Um, you know, what is it that what is it that you use? What is the language that you use? Um, what you know? What's your process for that? You trying to get me fired up now because this is <laughs> <laughs> absolutely going to happen here. Uh, okay, so uh, we we talk about leadership being a blend of competence and character, right? And that is the foundation of where we start with this. And like I said, competence is knowing what to do and how to do it. But when you think about most leadership failures, most leadership failures don't occur because the leader didn't know what to do or how to do it at the moment of testing. Their character failed them because when at the moment they were tested, when they had the choice between the harder right and the easier wrong, their character failed them and they chose the easier wrong. So how do we prepare for those tests that are coming? How do we prepare ourselves? And how do we prepare as leaders, which is our duty, it's our moral obligation to prepare the people that we're called to lead, to prepare them for those tests that we know are gonna come. How do we do that? We gotta think about leaders, uh, we gotta think about character as our character is the sum total of our habits our good habits and our bad habits. So we all have good habits and bad habits of character. And when you think about 
we said the actual definition we use in the book is our habitual way of operating. How we are is who we are. Now, somebody listening to this right now is going, ouch, right? And you know what? I do too. None of us have perfect character. We all got room to grow. See, our character is like a muscle. You've got to exercise it. Too many people think, well, this little white lie is no big deal, but when the big test comes, I'm going to be ready. And to that, I always say, if you've never lifted 50 pounds, what makes you going to what makes you think you're going to lift 300? Just like a muscle, you got to exercise it. And these exercises, just like a muscle, well, you know, reading a fitness magazine is not going to make us get in better shape. Reading a book by Dave Anderson or Jocko Welling or whoever is not going to make make you have better character. It's what you do. You have to do what you want to be. So it takes action, first of all. You, you got to go to the gym. You can't just read read about fitness. Secondly, you got to do you got to exercise consistently. Going to a, a firefighters of character seminar or going to one of one of Brene Brown's speeches, watching it on on TED Talk or whatever, isn't going to do it. It might give you some inspiration, but unless you're immersing yourself in this stuff on a regular basis, unless you're actually doing the things you're talking about and doing it on a regular basis, just like exercise, going to the gym once a year isn't going to do it. And third. You have to sweat. Exercising character is going to make you uncomfortable. If your goal is to be comfortable in life, you're probably not growing. And the old saying goes, a tree that stops growing starts dying. When we go to the gym, we know we got to break a sweat in order to actually build any muscle and get any more fit. It's the same thing with character. We got to exercise it and we've got to exercise it in the small things on a regular basis. That's good. Those small 50 pound lifts that are going to prepare us for the 300 pound lifts that come in life. And they're coming, whether or not you are a brand new firefighter, whether or not you're a battalion chief, whether or not you are, whether or not you are division chief, wherever you are at work or at home, there's a 300 pound lift coming your way. Are you ready for it? I kind of like to know your thoughts on this too. I 100% agree with buy end everything that you say. Um, I would add more. I would add one more thing to it and go. You got to talk about it. Um, you know, it's 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 one thing to kind of go out and do these things, but what works for me is saying it to somebody else and saying, you know, whoever that person is, whether it's your wife, significant other, somebody at work, your friend, um, and just. To me, that gives it another level of commitment. Like I've said this out loud. Like now, I now I truly own this, and there's no looking back. You know, if I don't say it out loud, for me, that's maybe the character flaw of uh, nobody knows that I was going to do that. So maybe I don't have to follow through. Yeah. Um, well, you know, when we talk about developing character, we do say that our character starts with our thoughts, but mm-hmm. in our brain matters. So what we do read affects who we're becoming. Right. But it's just because I read something doesn't mean I have that thing. Doesn't mean I have character if I read about character. But what we the more we more we think about something, the more we're likely to talk about it. And the more we talk about things, the more likely that that our speech impacts our actions. So going with what you're saying there, Josh, is when we start verbalizing these things, it tends to create actions that changes our choices 
But each time we make a choice, it makes it easier to make that same choice again and again and again. And that's how habits are formed. So there's that thoughts, words, actions, and then habits. And so the, you know, just saying I'm going to do something is, is, is the step before actually doing it. And just because I, but just because I do something once, just because, you know what, hey, I, I helped that junior firefighter out by, by, uh, by doing, by doing, cleaning the bathroom this week while he was preparing for his, uh, preparing for his online exams, right? I did it once. Haven't done it again. I did it. I did that three months ago. No, it's what do we do on a regular basis? Hey, you know, I took my I took my turn cooking, even though it wasn't even my turn because so and so's wife had an issue and he had to leave. So, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to cover for it and I'm not going to complain about it. I'm going to just do it. Right. Oh, you know, you're hanging your hat on the fact that you did that once. That's that's not a habit. But each time we do choose to serve somebody else in that way, it makes it easier to make that same choice again. And that's how those habits start to build inform you know, us yeah yeah that uh you had a question out of the book i did i did it, the very first line in your book you talk about there's a crisis in leadership mm -hmm. and i wanted you to you know define that for me and tell me what it looks like because i don't know i think we all have a kind of this kind of nebulous kind of fuzzy feeling about well I kind of think I know what he's talking about but maybe I maybe I'm off base so if you could define that for me and then you know maybe provide me a, an example uh, about where you see a crisis in leadership um, I think there's a crisis in leadership around the around with the lack of focus on a leader's character we keep promoting people and we keep training people on these competencies all the time. I mean, you, we can send somebody to get an MBA, right? Our, our country doesn't need more people with MBAs or more people with law degrees. We need people with more, more people with character in leadership. Those, those uh, letters that go behind your name after getting a degree don't make you a better leader. You know, the MBA is a master's in business administration, not in business leadership. Um, and the lack of focus on character, I think, has been a generational thing. This has gone on. This is starting to move away from that from gen for generations now. And uh, what we see, whether or not it's in the business world, whether or not we see it's in public service, whether or not we see it in politics, is not that people don't know what to do or how to do it. It's the choices that they're making when they're when they have a choice between, like I said, the harder right and the easier wrong, and we keep developing another training to treat the symptom. I mean, a great example of that right now is good training. I'm prefacing this good training, training on implicit bias and training on uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion, all great principles, right? But the root cause of those issues is character. And again, we're just giving another medicine for the symptoms and our, uh, you know, we've got a crisis in leadership because we keep going back to the same answers. You know, the defi you know, definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. Uh, the opposite, the opposite is this: the definition of sanity is 
if you want to accomplish something you've never accomplished before, you've got to start doing things you've never done before. And that's, you know, why introducing this character training in into our public safety world is, uh, you know, I, I think is why it's gotten so much uh, traction here over the last few years and, and thing is because I, you know, it is something that's so different than what's been done before. And uh, isn't it time that we try something different as opposed to just saying, well, there's there's a problem. Let's pull out our hammer. You know, if if the, you know if, if you see everything as a nail, you, all you need is a hammer, right? And so, uh, I think that it's time for a different different solution. You know, this is this kind of brings me back to a conversation that you and I had in in when you were the battalion one and I was a lieutenant at once, and. Uh, uh, and Dave, I'll start out by saying I've never heard anybody say, well, what's the different, what's the definition of sanity? You know, it's always, well, here's what insanity is. And when you said that, I'm like, man, like how many other things do we need to ask that about? Um, years ago, we were having a conversation about what we call vertical, vertical ventilation. And, you know, and I was talking about when to vertically ventilate. And, um, you know, my boss here said, well, tell me when you would not vertically ventilate. And I went, awkward pause i'm like nobody's ever asked me that before like i i have to think about that like i really need to define what that is um but this might not be hitting on the same thing that you were talking about but it was just you know asking that right question to be able to provoke that thought um you know is really what what all of that conversation just really helped me think about but you know thinking about what you're saying is is um i think leader Leadership's become black and white. Mm. And everybody's got to be all right or all wrong. Mm. So when Josh and I are having a conversation, um, it's not a, you know, it's not a conversation anymore. It's a debate on who's right or wrong. Hey, I have this belief and you have to accept it fully or you're wrong and we're, we're just not going to get along. Um, we're in a culture now where... Our news media is different than it was when Walter Cronkite was just reading the news. You know, no longer does someone come on the news and just say, here's what happened today. Figure it out. Mm -hmm. Figure out what you believe. Now I have news media, and this isn't a political statement. It doesn't matter, you know, what three letters or what that news media is called. But they give me the opinion. Mm -hmm. And every opinion is based on this is all right and everything else is all wrong. So to me, that's a crisis in leadership because it's leaked into our leadership, you know, in that from a political perspective is the politicians don't get around it along anymore, right? They, 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 it's all or nothing for them. That's no, there's no more, we walk into a room, we're all gonna get 75% of what we asked for and we're gonna walk out in agreement and we're going to move forward because it's always better than what we had before. Now it's like I want 100% or I don't want anything. Well, how does that translate into our real world? Well, because of all the inputs we have, because of all the political leaders that we see, we go to work and I want everything. Like I want you to have your calendar the way my calendar is, and I want you to do this the way I do it, and there's no more give and take and so me as a leader, I become more rigid, I become more black and white, and it, and it hurts the relationships that we need to build to make us good leaders. Well, 
I'm not changing my calendar. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say this: to take that step uh, a step further, uh, Chief, is the fact that the you know I I said most leadership failures are character failures. What I didn't say before is most character failures go back to one or two issues, fear or pride. That's, That's why we one. start with courage and humility as our first two, because they are the foundational habits of character for every other, for the other four that we talk about. But the humility to say, uh, you know, we, again, we define it as believing and acting like it's not about me to have the humility to stop and recognize I might not have all the answers. You know what? Maybe I don't understand that this person's perspective as much as I think I do. Uh, and uh, I'm a big believer that if we spent more time trying to understand other people than than we did trying to win our argument, uh, a lot more things would be moving forward than stalemating or actually creating more strife within our, our society. Uh, too many people are more interested in screaming their own beliefs than they are in trying to understand other people's beliefs and under other people's perspectives. And if we had more people who just said, help me understand, just help, help me understand where you're coming from and just sat back and actually listened instead of formulating an argument while that person was speaking, we'd be in a much better place. You just gave me the aha, the light bulb, light bulb moment. Um, for quite a while, I've been trying to practice the idea of courage and humility, you know, putting in that, that real effort. But I never thought about or I never knew what I was trying to replace, mm. you know, and you just said it. You're trying to replace fear um, and um, right. ego. No, you didn't say ego. What did you say? Pride. Pride. That's what it was. Yeah. Um, but man, that was a big light bulb moment. When, as soon as you said that, I'm like, oh, there's a, there's an answer to one of these. Like, why am I trying to do this? Because I'm trying to overcome having the, um, the pride issue well, some um, people, or that, that fear issue. Some people think that's a sign of weakness. And unfortunately, that, that, that are, you know, we, like we said in the book, uh, in, in the humility chapter that our societies are, are, are looks at humility as a weakness because they think that means you're going to give in. And I, no, that just means I'm willing to listen. That doesn't mean I'm going to necessarily believe what you believe, but I am willing to listen to it. But people aren't even listening right now going with what she said. So it's, it's having the humility to really work to understand the other person. And I have some very good friends that I have very big differences in our opinions on a lot of things that are still that we can have lively conversations. And then I say, okay, so you need, you need me to pour you some more bourbon right now. I mean, we, we can have those conversations and walk away and still be friends. And that's, that is, has been lost. And I think that goes back to that crisis in leadership that can you, you can string it back to the humility to, and, and then also the courage to say, you know what? I don't know everything. You right. might be right. <sighs> what if somebody said that? What? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Or even questioning yourself. What if I'm wrong? Right. You know, okay. Like I believe this. What if I'm wrong? Right. You know, wh what else could it be? What else do I need to think about? What else do I need to look at? And we realize that what that can do in a firehouse, if the leadership in a firehouse is so sure of themselves that their way well, this is the way we've done it. I know it works. So this is the way we're going to do it. 
And if that is the attitude, then we wonder why, you know, there's no new innovative ways of doing things around here. There's, you know, oh, why, why, you know, again, why are things, you know, what, what's the old saying? What, what are firefighters, two things firefighters hate? <laughs> All right. The, the way things are and the way things and are and change. Change. Yep. <laughs> absolutely. So, well, and, I, and I'll have to admit why that, that's happening. Yeah, I mean, I have to admit our department's pretty progressive. Yes. Um, Especially the last five to ten years, we've done um, a real good job um, at advancing ourselves, finding better ways, being accepting to that and training to that. Um, Culturally, I think that's changed a lot over the 25 years I've been here, and we've, you know, currently have an administration that's very open to change. And quite honestly, um, membership... Uh, in our department is very open to change. Yeah. You know, they might complain about it, but they move forward with it and they make it the best they can. Yeah, absolutely. This is the, you know, this conversation, this is timing wise, this is the perfect time for, you know, to listen to this conversation because we have a, you know, the organization is accepting of it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I see you, I see you thumbing through the book. I again. do. I've got another question out of the book. Yes, um, sir. We've talked we've been the department about servant leadership and some trepidation with servant leadership in that they, that people think of it as subservient leadership in that, you know, because I'm serving another person, um, I need to cow down to whatever their needs are. Don't ruffle any feathers, just give them whatever they want, allow them to be however they want to be, uh, which puts when, uh, which puts us in conflict when they're not, meeting the minimum standards of their job. Mm-hmm. So in your book, you said, a, char- a leader of character never places resources, projects, or administrative tax- tasks before people. Such leaders know that the work has to get done, but they know that people do the work and that people are more important than the work itself. How do we tie that into those underperformers? What do we do with folks that aren't meeting the minimum standard when we're looking at either st- servant leadership or leadership of character? Uh, I'm going to start with your lead in on that before I address what you read, just read in our, our book. Uh, I think people who believe that's what servant leadership is about should go back and reread servant leadership books like Jim Hunter's uh, servant leadership book. Jim Hunter, uh, actually, uh, I've spent some time with him talking to him about servant leadership. And uh, he 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 would tell them they are flat out wrong if that's what they think servant leadership is. Uh, well, and I think they think that because they're not well studied on it. They, they just take the they just take the word servant, and yes. then that's and, where they go with it. You know, servant leaders, and 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 we've discussed servant leadership in our chapter on selflessness. Uh, servant leaders don't, you know, they care about their people, but they don't coddle them. Okay, I care so much about you. I'm going to have a really hard conversation with you right now, and it's going to sting when I do it. But I care about you because I believe you need to be better than you are right now. I believe you can be better. I believe you have more potential than you even see in yourself. So I'm going to have a very hard conversation with you right now. For those of us who played sports growing up, you probably all of us can think of that one coach who might not have always said it exactly the way we wanted it to be said to us, but because we knew they cared about us, 
we actually listened to the content of what they said. And it stung, but we paid attention to it. So servant leaders will have those hard conversations with people because they care about them. And uh, again, it goes, you know, care, it, that goes back to motives as well. Uh, as far as when we are looking at, uh, when we're looking at those people who might not be meeting standards, uh, going back to that duty, that moral obligation that we have, uh, as leaders, we have a moral obligation to hold people to standards. And uh, I think one of the things people need to realize is what standards are. Standards are not goals that we should aspire to meet someday. Standards are the minimum. So if I'm holding somebody to the, to the minimum standards, uh, what, I, what I would tell people all the time was, look, am I asking you to do anything I'm not asking anybody else to do? And the person say, no. Like, well, am I asking you to do anything illegal, immoral, or unethical? No. Right? I'm just asking you to do the bare minimum and get to that, get above the get above the minimum. And there's some people who are unwilling to do that, and it's not that they're not able to. There's a difference between people who are unable to meet the minimum and people who are unwilling to meet the minimum. And that difference should make a difference on whether how long they stay in our department how quickly we move to get them out. Because if somebody's just saying, I don't wanna, we have a duty, we have a moral obligation, and as servant leaders, we are serving ev not just that one person, we're serving everybody else in that firehouse. And if we're not willing to have that hard conversation with that one person in that firehouse who is the Eeyore in the room, can't believe they're making us do all this stuff. This is the stupidest thing I ever heard. I can't believe this new load, this hose load plan is ridiculous. Uh, and dragging everybody down. If me as a leader, I'm not willing to have that hard conversation and recognize I don't just ser serve that one person. I serve the entire team here. Being a servant leader is I'm serving everybody on that team. And if I got one person who's bringing the rest of the team down, it's my moral obligation to address that. And that doesn't mean it's going to be all soft and cuddly all the time. Uh, and uh, so we have to address those pers those uh, performance issues. And that's our duty. And we don't have, we don't have to be uh, the south end of a north-facing horse to do that. Uh, we can do it professionally. And uh, like I said, we do it depending on the type of personality we're dealing with. And when we do the training, we do all these sorts of, of case studies and scenarios uh, uh, that y'all might be familiar with in the firehouse and with different personalities. And, uh, and we get to practice these things. Yeah, and I think, you know, when you talk about servant leadership and you talk about, um, you know, kind of addressing that person, I think that the, the, the other servant side of that is the recognition that that type of issue takes work. You know, it's time consuming. It's a lot of work to get somebody to, you know, one, have the buy-in, you know, hopefully to have the buy-in to want to be better, um, or even just getting up to that minimum standard and, and just doing the job that they're supposed to do. Um, and then when is that point that, um, and I'll use a, a little phrase that one of our, our, our captains I heard say years ago was, when is that point where we go, it's time to trade them? You know, it's time, this isn't working. Um, and that situation was, you know, 
particular to a program on the job. So it wasn't like, like, oh, let's get rid of this person from the job. But it's like the person wasn't performing within that program and they had put a year's worth of work into it and with no change. And it's like, it's time to trade them, mm-hmm. you know, and like, where is, you know, where are those levels? And, and as a servant leader, am I willing to put the work in? And I think one thing I would say is too, is this, people need to realize the difference between a compliant group and a committed team. Okay, uh, a compliant group does things because they have to, and they usually only do the minimum. A committed team does things because they want to, and they usually go above and beyond. And it usually comes down to, and and you can have that. You can have a compliant group and a committed team in that same house. And the only difference between those two groups is the person who's in charge of that that company. Right. You can have two companies and that one could be committed and one can be just compliant. And the only difference is the leader in charge uh, who's responsible for that group. And uh, and it comes down to caring enough. Doesn't mean that the person who has the committed team is coddling their people, but they are caring for them. And I think that's an important thing to differentiate from. That's great. Mm-hmm. Did you have anything else? I do actually have one more question. Awesome. Tell me your favorite story about your dad. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, is this a story about my dad? Okay, I will tell you this story. Because um, I think it ties into what we talked about. Uh, uh, you heard at the beginning that I'm, uh, well, maybe, maybe then I, I am a child of the 80s. I graduated from high school in 1984. I graduated from college in 1988. A lot of the things about me in that during the, that decade is exactly what you think about the 80s. I would go to some days. I go to school with uh, an ACDC T-shirt on, and the other days I go to school with a skinny leather tie and parachute pants. Oh yes, <laughs> yeah, right. And I had, but I also had the haircut, the 80s haircut which was, you know, uh, back then we called them bi-levels. Uh, mm-hmm. Today they just call them mullets, okay? And so I had, I had this, you know, business in the front, party in the hair, uh, back haircut. And I was coming home from work one day. I was, I was waiting tables uh, my junior and senior in high school. And I came home from work one day, and my dad looked at me and made a crack about the length of my hair. And I looked at him, I did one of these whatever and i showed him my hand i just put my hand up and said whatever <laughs> to the army ranger <laughs> yeah you know yeah uh and so my dad looked at me and he pointed at me and when i was got used to get in trouble in high school he used to call me bud as a matter of fact he still calls me bud when i'm in trouble but point <laughs> being is he, he called me bud and he said hey bud your attitude's a choice make a different choice <laughs> oh that is great the fact that our book that i've written with my father is so much about choices and how our choices build to become habits and how we all have uh, uh, you know an our attitude you know he said our attitudes of choice make a different choice i think that that just kind of uh sums up what we've been talking about here and everything we've talked about today and everything we talked about in this book I always remind people who's in control of it. Yeah. We are the user, right? We are. Yeah. 
how many things do we in life do we how much time do we spend on all this stuff that we have no control over we can't control we can't control uh you know the society we can't we can't control our kids we can't control our spouses we can't control our leadership we can't control control the people we're called to lead we can't control the city government we can't control any of those things but that's what we spend all our time focused on but as we said the number one reason why people want to follow us remember that 87 percent character and the number one reason why people leaders fail character is a hundred percent in our control and I'm hoping that when people think about that story about my dad says your attitude's a choice, make a different choice. We all have an opportunity right now to start making different choices because these these habits, our good habits and our bad habits are 100% in our control. And anybody listening right now or anybody who does end up going through one of our classes or reading our book or whatever, I hope you realize right now that, yeah, there's probably going to be some things in, in what we talk about or what we have spoken about that makes you say, ouch, right? Because that stung a little bit, but realize that you can start making changes today and work on your character today by just making one new choice. Because each time we make a choice, it makes it easier to make that same choice again and again and again. And that's the basic way habits are formed, one choice at a time. It's very powerful stuff. And you just crushed the last question that I was going to ask you. So I'm going to ask it because I was going to say, okay, here comes the softball. But I was going to ask you, what is the one thing that our firefighters can start doing right now today to help strengthen their character? And you kind of touched on it, but I was kind of leaning a different direction of like, what can our people do right now? And really it relates to your book. (laughs) I appreciate that softball too. Uh, First thing I would say is this, uh, we have a character assessment that people can take uh, and it's www.mycharactertest.com. Yes. www.mycharactertest.com. I'll send you both a a QR code if you want to post it somewhere so people can use a QR code to get to it if they want to do that. I can I can put that in an email to you so you have that. It's free. It's private. Nobody sees your results but you. But the point behind it is it kind of gives you a snapshot is where am I on these six habits of character Dave's been talking about right now. Yeah, and I think I I did that, and I'm thinking it didn't take me more than five or ten minutes. It doesn't. It It, it was very quick. It was very quick. And it was like I know myself pretty well now, and it was very accurate. Yeah, You sucked, didn't you? I did. (laughs) That's what it said. Like as soon as I got done, it was this flashing red. You suck. (laughs) I don't know. Like why? Why do you do this? Like why do you do this on the air? I just I know you well. I know, but like you could do it like behind closed doors, you know, in private. Do, Do you not read any leadership books? No. Well, all right. We've taken an hour and a half of your time, so we appreciate it. Um, Tell us what your book is and tell us where we can get it. Yeah. It's Becoming a Leader of Character, Six Habits That Make or Break a Leader at Work and at Home. Uh, You can get it. uh, You can go to Amazon, look it up on Amazon. You can also go to our website. If you go to firefightersofcharacter.com, that's firefightersofcharacter.com. You can look and see what we have for firefighters specifically, but that's also the main site for becoming a leader of character. And you can order a book there if you want it signed. I'm happy to sign it for you. Some people ask for that. I don't sign them all automatically because there's a chapter on humility in there. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, and if you want to email us, just email me at dave at 
alslead.com. That's Alpha Lima Sierra Lead.com. And I'm happy to respond to anybody. And uh, we put out blogs every week. And uh, there's that that option as well. Dave, it's, it's truly been a pleasure. Um, I've really enjoyed the couple of conversations that um, that I've got to have with you and, and particularly the, this one. This has been really great. Thank you for sharing your knowledge, your background, your experience and your passion, you know, for for the topic of leadership. Um, I, I hope that you can recognize that, um, you know, both Chief White and I are, are very passionate about the topic, um, you know, and to be able to to get this time with you means a lot. So thank you very much for your time. Uh, I, I appreciate both of you. And uh, this is a passion of mine as hopefully y'all have seen it and heard it in my voice. Uh, and uh, honestly, I didn't expect to be doing working with public uh, servants as much as I do. Uh, but uh, it's my favorite part of the job uh, because uh, y'all are people who actually care about serving. And that's most of you. That's exactly why you're doing what you do is that root cause there. And if I can serve you all in any way, uh, that just fills my cup. So thank you very much. All right, everybody, thank you for listening. I'd like to thank again Dave Anderson, author of the book, Becoming a Leader of Character. He was very generous with his time, a lot of interesting topics, uh, a lot of great things to talk about with him. I know we do a lot of leadership stuff uh, on the show, and thank you all for listening. Now, hailing from the coastal city of Brighton, UK, Sarawa is a songwriter, musician, and producer firmly rooted in the commercial realm. After years of cutting his teeth in studios and making music for major brands, 2022 brought Sourwall's first release and as, as an independent artist. A huge fan of collaboration, Sourwall's goal is simply to flow and enjoy the process. Expect nothing less than feel-good bangers and upbeat epicness using electronic hip-hop and funky stylings. Taking this out the door today uh, is It's Going Down by Sourwall. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for listening. Be nice. It's important.